Welcome back to the Emerge podcast. My name is Tom Neely, Housing Sector Lead at Berwick Partners. Within this podcast series, we aim to discuss some of the key issues facing leaders. And today, I was delighted to be joined by Victor Dacuna, Chief Executive of Curo Group. We discuss how under Vic's leadership, Curo has become an investors in people gold employer and was ranked in the top 50 best companies to work for in the Southwest. In addition to his role at Curo, Vic sits on the National Housing Federation's Diversity, Equalities and Inclusion Board, and we discuss what more can be done to improve equality and diversity in our sector. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please do like and subscribe. Vic, firstly, welcome, and thank you for joining us on our Berwick Partners podcast, Emerge. For the listeners, could you just give us a brief introduction of yourself and your organisation? Hi, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Victor Dakuda, um, I'm Group Chief Executive at Cura Group. Uh, we're based in the Southwest. Um, our head office is in Bath, but we operate across what's now known as the West of England Combined Authority. So for those that have got long memories, probably the Avon region back in the old days, you know, the Bristol bit, the South Gloss bit, uh, North Somerset, we're in Wiltshire a bit. Um, so that area, an area, you know, of amazing, beautiful cities and really attractive places to come, uh, but also, um, you know, home to some really terrible, um, I guess, areas of, of deprivation and poverty, um, you know, Bath, some of the areas we, we serve, uh, you know, 10th, 11th, decile most deprived wards in the country. Um, so lots of work to do in terms of social justice and the work we do as housing associations, but enormous challenges also because of uh, average earnings to house prices, you know, bar 14 times. Um, and we, we are very seriously behind in the delivery of the affordable homes we need. We, we're about a third of the homes being built every year, affordable homes. So, um, you know, in addition to the sort of broader range of stuff we, that a normal housing association might do, a few years ago, Kiro established its own house building division to build homes for sale, but that allowed us to ramp out the output, but also um, cross-subsidise the affordable housing element, which at the time it was, um, wasn't really well-funded. I mean, thankfully, things have changed the government now. Uh, given more uh, allocation to a new affordable home. So uh, we're able to complement the affordable programme with some stuff that we're doing through cross-subsidy. So happy days. Thank you. And you've obviously been with Curo and been a chief executive for, for quite a number of years now. Uh, can you explain or share with us a bit about your journey, but also some of the challenges you've faced along the way to becoming a chief executive? Oh, the, the chief exec story. Um, I, you know, interestingly enough, I always tell this story to my colleagues when we do induction these days, because um, one of the things I say, we're all about values at Curo and purpose. You know, we synthesize our purpose as homes for good. Everything that we do should be about homes for good. And homes for good is like, can be used in different ways in our homes for good because they're good quality, homes for good because they've got long-term tenancies. Homes for good because they're affordable. You know, there's a whole range of reasons that that touchstone, that North Star, whatever you describe that reason for existing works really well. But underneath that homes for good is a series of values, which 10 years ago when I arrived at Curo, 
we worked together, collaborated and created and now for permeate and are used as sort of common currency in our organization. You know, everything's about values. Mm. Our behaviors are all anchored to what's an acceptable behavior uh, to, to your colleagues and customers, values. Um, but when I do the induction program for colleagues, I always tell my story, which is uh, strangely about finding a place that you love because if you find a place that fulfills you, you don't ever have to work again. And I know it sounds a bit cliched and stuff, but it's absolutely true. Particularly where the younger people coming into the organization, I always say, listen, I hope you love what we do. Our purpose, you know, fulfills you, makes you, you have a sense of real achievement when you go home, because actually we have a really, sometimes days are really hard. They are bad days. But what makes them better is that what we do is so important and it makes us actually fulfilled. The bad days are all right because it, they're for a reason. The bad day was for a reason. I always say, I always, I always say that, but I always tell you my story, which is broadly speaking, very quickly, as an immigrant coming into this country in the early 70s, when mum and dad came over, um, the one of the first places that we we, we went to was uh, what is now called technically HMO, Housing in Multiple Occupation. It basically was typically, but not exclusively, single men renting rooms uh, and with communal kitchens and communal bathrooms. Um, and when the first place we came to, which was in uh, Kennington, South London, um, mum and dad weren't even in the same floor. I mean, they were on the, on the middle floor and we were upstairs and the room we were in was literally the size of two single beds. And we would use it as a trampoline. You know, that's all there was. There wasn't even a side. Basically, we could jump around and not get hurt because you couldn't fall off the blooming beds. They were just literally two beds. But mum and dad didn't like it for various reasons, not least they couldn't keep an eye on us. So we, when we moved to the second house, we were on the same level. Mum and dad were on one floor and we were on the other floor um, with a communal corridor for everyone to go upstairs. And then we had we had bunk beds and, and a dining table where we ate. Mum and dad had a, had a telly. And then there was a, another room, which was our, our kitchen. We didn't have to share that kitchen like the first house. But off the kitchen, there was a bathroom, but it didn't have any hot water and any heating. We used to have like, it was so cold. It sounds terrible. It sounds like one of these sort of, oh, woe is me stories. But it's not. I don't actually have any bad. Uh, it didn't It didn't scar me. It just reminded me about how important affordable quality housing is. And that's the point of the story. It's like, it was so cold. We had a paraffin heater. And I don't know, well, you probably don't know, but back in the old days, you go to the hardware store and they would sell you paraffin. I still remember the smell of paraffin and you put this, it's so dangerous, <laughs> you know, with all the conversation about fires these days. Anyway, we turned this paraffin on and then my sister and I, we watched telly, my mum and dad's room in bed. It was like, it was like something out of, um, what's his name? Uh, Willy Wonka, that film, you know, when a grandparents yeah. Yeah. in the bed. It was a bit like that. And, and, uh, and the reason I tell you stories like that, the, the sorts of things landlords could get away with. So the landlord used to go, said to my mum one day, we need you. So it's like, you saw me argue when you, the woman upstairs, we need you to sort of say you saw us arguing and she was like physically, you know, holding me and stuff. Mum said, I'm sorry, I'm not getting involved. And anyway, with that, she tried to evict my mum and dad and us, right? Because 
we our food our food smell right our food smell so they wanted to evict us right anyway mum and dad couldn't speak a blooming word of english so we rocked up to Southwark crown court or wherever it was anyway it wasn't crown court whatever somewhere um and uh there were being there was a translator going and during this translation um it's, it came out that mum and dad didn't have any heating there was no hot water and there was no heating anyway Rather than being evicted, my mum and dad got their rent reduced from seven pa- from nine pounds to seven pounds. So it was the right result in the end. But the only thing mum and dad wanted was a council house. So we, mum and dad, put themselves down for a council house, and in the end, we did get a council house. And I always tell this story to colleagues because um, when I fell into housing, as all of us do, you know, none of us like the the the, the, the counselor are oh, what you are is a social housing. Uh, manager or, or housing officer it, we all fall, sort of fall into housing don't we and um, when I sort of fell into this I came to realize that those formative years of living in a council estate with kiddies running along the, the corridor and having my own little room and hot water and eating and actually put, being able to go to school without moving around and you know actually having a place which was ours was so fundamentally important that I thought you know I'm going to do this for the rest of my life I absolutely love what we do and it makes such a difference in my life, you know, not least the people we serve, you know, if it fulfills me, imagine how much uh, I think generally, although we have our challenges as a sector about services and stuff, overall, we are a remarkable uh, sector. Um, and so I come into, into um, this role 10 years ago with all this stuff going on, which is, you know, I want, I want to make us a better service provider but I also want us to be an organization that culturally um, is unified in that purpose you know about we are it's so important for us to have these values lived every single day and we even articulated in order to express what Kiro's culture was we even articulated it so we have a culture uh, I think many people have probably done this but we, we, there is a tool you can use which characterizes culture into seven different segments. For example, it, it characterizes culture about the things that people say to each other, talk about, the stories they tell. It tells you a lot about an organizational culture. If you overhear the stories that organizations or colleagues talk to each other about, uh, it's about the way that power is distributed and how decisions are made in an organization, how uh, working practices are established. And simple things like uh, the symbols of an organisation. You know, you've got to remember, Kira, when I rocked up, there were still executive car parking spaces by the front door, you know, and everyone else had to go and find a car park. Um, there were very visible signs of an organisation that was quite hierarchical and about um, almost like the self-administrative need rather than the customer it served. Mm. So, you know, part of that organisational um transformation was around how culturally we start to realize how important it is for people to really own the organization's purpose and contribute to it every day and and live values that mean that no one's immune from them no one at senior level not bored no anyone everyone is required to i guess understand and then live uh, those values and use those values as almost like a currency Mm. And a lot of organizational issues, even to this day, is about people. Yeah. You know, because you can have all the best systems in the world, 
that if the people don't really own them, don't mm. believe in them, they will make a mess of it. But equally, if you've got great people that are fully engaged, they can make rubbish systems work somehow, remarkably. They can just somehow navigate the most ridiculous of clunky systems. And so we invested very heavily in the people side and the culture side and the value side and said, at some stage, we will get to tidying up our systems. So, you, you know, the conversations we were having earlier on about we've, we've embraced agility and how to be an agile organization, which is really a systems-based approach, I think can only really hold on, can only grab traction once the people bit is nailed. You know, and we're now, you know, top five uh, best companies. Uh, you know, we've got IIP, Gold. There are enough com components of a good, that characterize a good organizational culture and and behavior set that says right it's it's it's, it's been tough mind you it's been a while now we've been working on the on the on the on the systems and processes but that's always been the the, the the forefront which is the culture bit and this is a bit that the edi the the inclusion and belonging bit sits very firmly within and i've seen that bit just in respect to talk about ED&I and I've seen Curo's manifesto and, and also the, the recent roadmap that you've published. Can you talk to us a bit more about this and, and how this will shape Curo for years to come? Sure. I, look, I, I think the important thing is that all organisations are always work in progress, just like you and I are humans. We're always working, we're always evolving, improving, trying to get better. Um, so coming from an organisational perspective that says, what can we do better? What things haven't we yet achieved uh, in a sort of, you know, curious way, in a way that is genuinely authentic and asking questions about how we improve is, is the starting point. And, you know, over the pandemic, there were a number of things that surfaced, which is, you know, reminding us that we live in, in a world that's not just in touch. You know, people don't live in worlds where it's, you know, fair, you know, some people have more slices of the cake than other people. You know, just simple things like being able to work from home. You know, some people have found that really straightforward. Other people don't have to simply have the capability to work from home and have struggled with that. Um, and over that, that period early on, it, it struck me, um, particularly with Black Lives Matter and other things where we were seeing on the television, just how much there was still to do around the areas of inclusion and fairness and racism. Um, and it made me reflect on what we as an organization have been doing overtly, uh, in addition to sort of what you might expect legally an organization to do. And I've, I felt that we hadn't done enough. I felt like I hadn't done enough, either at Curo or uh, as one of the, the more vocal people in our sector. Um, and so when, when uh, the NatFed put out its call for people to get involved in the national group, I, uh, you know, I, you know, I ran at the opportunity to be involved at a national level uh, and then, quite frankly, took that, that knowledge and that, that sort of energy and, and tried to develop and, and enhance what we're doing at Cura because, you know, we published our, not only our gender uh, pay gap, but we, we published our uh, ethnicity pay gap, our disability pay gap on the back of uh, the starting point to any journey, which is to be, um, I guess, really upfront about the starting point of any challenges you have. And we, we've got challenges. And, and I, I think most organisations, if they're 
honest, uh, will say, you know, they could do better when it comes to inclusion, diversity, and creating a sense of genuine belonging where, where all people, you know, genuinely have a sense of ownership and in the journey and, and the purpose of an organisation. And so um, when, when um, the debate really began to surface at Curo, it became clear that our culture map that I talked to you about wasn't really sufficiently uh, developed when it came to being prescriptive about the characteristics culturally that we wanted to, to show and to, and to develop in relation to EDI. Uh, and so the work which is, has to be led really by the board and by the exec, um, you know, centers around understanding where we are, but also, you know, characterizing through our culture and our measures where we want to get over the next few years. But equally, not being, I guess the, the, the starting point to this is not being embarrassed. Because as soon as you start saying this is embarrassing, so it closes down a debate. So being curious about the issues and asking how can we become more inclusive? How can we create a, a stronger sense of belonging? That was the starting point of the conversation. And being and, and making a public commitment as chief exec to say, these are the three things I'm going to be doing. And then did in July allows us to say, right, those that's the starting point of a conversation which we can track, being held accountable internally and externally for those things, and then saying these are the next things I'm going to do. Um, because part of this has to be very overt change. Hmm. Um, and uh, so the, the manifest and the plan is really about creating, you know, being creating a conversation in the organization. Uh, create hopefully creating a conversation in our sector and then getting individuals to make commitments what are they going to do to make a difference and so our, our plan is really about what we as individual leaders in the business will do to make a difference through what might be measures and actions we're going to take within the business but also encourage activity amongst our colleagues our senior and, and more junior colleagues to take the same level of action because we're all responsible for making the environment that we work within and to challenge the environment isn't it if we if we're working in an environment that's not consistent to what we say is our values or promotes effective you know belonging within an organization what are we doing about it we, when when we did our colleague conference in july the entire conference was about edi we had some cracking speakers um and and, and we learn loads because that's part of the, the thing you know learning loads uh, and even just being a great ally, understanding what being an ally is and being a great ally and being able to feel confident in calling out things is really important. Mm. But if you have those debates and share that knowledge and encourage conversations, you can't build the infrastructure, the, the sort of foundations of what needs to happen thereafter. So I would describe where we are really in that foundational stage of creating the appetite, the understanding and the sort of almost sense of purpose around doing more work in this we, we as an organization not only are we not reflective enough of our community and the people we serve but i think we're losing the opportunity to get such great talent yeah. you know we are not getting the talent we need because people are perhaps somehow seeing an organization that's not about them it's not mm -hmm. calling to them 
It's not some, an organization that thinks speaks to them as an individual. So part of it is to create a dialogue where we go, right, what is it that we're trying to do and who are we calling upon? How do we create that sense of purpose? And just on that, because you talk there around bringing in talent and making sure the, the values and beliefs are aligned to that. How are you ensuring that your talent and recruitment strategies aligned with the DNI values and beliefs that you have? Well, we basically, we're going to completely reinvent our employee value proposition. Um, today, uh, my senior team and I were talking about what we're calling the Cura 2025. Okay. So what will Cura be like in five years' time or six years' time? Uh, and what's that vision? Because there are lots of things over the pandemic that we might argue were difficult and, you know, never to be repeated moments. Um, but also there was lots of things that came out that were very positive, you know, and people discovering for the first time that being able to work from home and then hybrid form and that some things work better in this platform and other things are really about proximity to other human beings. It was, was all learning. But we didn't want to sort of sleepwalk into a sort of new hybrid way of working. We wanted to, you know, going back to this point around being clear what the culture looks like and then working back on what the actions will take to be in that zone at a particular point in time, expect, accepting you know, that cultures are always evolving and they're always developing. And, and so the reason I answer it this way is that um, the idea that we can embed this activity uh, our employee value proposition and the way that we recruit, retain, call to talent from the broadest has to be, you know, in that vision, it has to be connected into the direction of travel. So I would say to you that we're pretty much having to rewrite that all uh, and to embed it. So mm -hmm. it's part of um, the entire offer to colleagues existing and hopefully new colleagues that will arrive in time. And from a leadership perspective you mentioned earlier around the power of authenticity but also ensuring that this message is consistent and also it, it is consistent in regards to its delivery on a on a daily weekly basis how are you holding yourself and your leadership team to account on the delivery of of, of the vision well you need some metrics you must put somewhere in your strategic dashboard some areas about um, culture and inclusion. So you might, and we, we do um, quarterly pulse surveys of call colleagues. So these are questions we're constantly getting feedback on and measuring on a scorecard. So I think measures are important, but there's also the role modeling that leaders need to take in this regard. So uh, there's what's measured, uh, but there's also what's said, how you lead, what conversations you create, uh, what things you choose to prioritize. So I attend the EDI group uh, and a, a, um, a board member attends the EDI group. It's, it's very obviously an important thing to us. Mm. Um, so it's not just about how you measure it. It's about how you prioritize and what you give prominence to and what you, you know, where you choose to spend your time and, and how you introduce conversations. They're as important as what you're measuring. The fact that it's hardwired into our culture web the fact that we will revisit it as part of the strategic plan progress update is important because there's systems of making sure that things are being done. 
But I think the most powerful thing is that the leaders, whether it's your chair, uh, who our chair has also gone on, on the board version of the national group, uh, whether it's your chair or if it's your exec team, that they're talking about this and they're asking questions about this and they're thinking about it whenever you design services or when you're thinking about employment offers, um, how you engage your colleagues. Um, that's how you do it. It's, 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 also, it's about behaviour as it is about systemic um, processes you put in place. That's interesting. And also big on that, you, you mentioned there around it's systemic. Over the past 18 months, houses associations have all have navigated some extraordinary challenges, not only with the pandemic, but also with, with various different other things that have gone on throughout the, throughout the UK. Well, in addition to that, you've also had to balance some real long-term strategic agendas towards building safety and net zero carbon. With all that being said, how does the sector continue to make DNI a priority and ensure that it doesn't just fall into being a tick box exercise, which arguably it may have been a number of years ago? Uh, well, I see them as very different. You know, I see the, the challenges of the sector, building safety, the quality of home, uh, the regulatory environment. Um, these are things we have to do. You know, these are these are non-negotiable things. They, they, these are just uh, challenges the sector needs to respond to. Mm. But I think the EDI, uh, the, the, the challenge of an organisation or our organisations to make our, our sector a beacon of inclusion is, a, is really a how we're going to get there. You know, I think culturally and, and from a leadership perspective, the way we achieve those things you've just described is through having really engaged, inclusive, inclusive cultures, you know, and, and to and attract the best talent possible. You know, so I'm, I'm very clear that actually one leads to the other. If we can be an organization, if we can be a sector that that people with talent, whoever they might be, go, I want to go there we will have the talent necessary to be have safer properties, you know, to decarbonize our stock, to make sure that we are engaging our customers and we are clearly listening to their voice and responding to those issues around consumer regulation and other things, as well as our own strategic priorities and plans. I think it's the, the issue around talent and challenge management and EDI is, is, is the key to organizational and sector-wide success absolutely so it needs to be embedded in everything we do it needs to be a conversation all the time um, in it's been remarkable one of the big sort of tales of the uh whether it's brexit or the the pandemic is just how difficult talent has suddenly become you know good quality talent isn't that easy to come by uh, and so for me, you know, having an organizational approach, which is as inclusive as possible and calls to as much talent as possible, well, all things are equal. Money is a, is a hygiene factor. You know, it will drag you to an organization, but it won't keep you there. What will keep you there is a sense of belonging. So I think what, what I think we need to understand is one will lead to the other. And the priority on the people is a bit like I described earlier. Focus on the people. Because if we get that right and the culture right in our sector and our individual organisations, 
then the outcomes, which is the decarbonization, the safe stock, the better quality accommodation that will come out, will come out because that's just simply a product of the quality of the people you're hiring and retaining. Uh, we talked about culture there, which is real cultural change, as we both know, take, takes a huge amount of time and yeah. there's, no, there's no quick fixes. However, do you have any advice to senior leaders on any objective measures that leaders could take to improve disparities that, that may exist in their workplace? I think the starting point is to be clear what you think grey looks like and articulate it. Um, when, when we, 10 years ago, in fact, we just, re, well, this is what we were doing today, we're refreshing it. When we um, launched our first strategic plan, we turned our vision about the organisation into a story. Stories are really powerful. Um, stories can make, can connect you emotionally. And it can easily articulate something that's quite difficult, particularly if those stories are told through a colleague or a customer experiencing your organization. Um, and, you know, that's precisely what we're doing now. We're, we're rewriting what the story of Cura will be in 2025 so that it is an emotional connection to our colleagues and to our customers. And it articulates who we'd like to be then culturally. If you can set out what great looks like, then you can create the building blocks that lead there. And if you can build, create the building blocks that get you there, you can measure how long, how well you, you are traveling in those building blocks. Now, those building blocks can be the way your office is set up. Those building blocks can be how you're offering employment benefits and pay. That building block might be about the technology you provide. That building block might be about the level of delegation, decision-making you offer people. But they all are building blocks to a story that tells colleagues and tells the customer, this is how we want the organisation to feel in five years' time. And it's a big evolution to that, but we will take it through a step by step and we will measure progress. And we've been doing that successfully, I believe successfully, over the last few years. And it's worked for us because if it, it's much... If you try and explain to a colleague or a customer about KPIs and systems thinking and, and processes, it is a boring, quite frankly, unless that's your thing. Or, but it doesn't really tell you how you feel. And what I think people want to know is, how will I feel? Will this be a better experience for me then than it is today? And do I go along this journey? Do I support you in this journey? Because it's worthwhile. Because everyone knows that change is scary. So I can either be on board in this change journey or transformation or evolution, however you want to phrase it, or I can resist it. And I think stories are a great way to tell that, that, that movement that you're trying to get to, that, that place in the future. So that's how we're doing it. Whether or not other people would like to do it that way it is another matter. But certainly I think that's, that's a real powerful way of, of setting it all out. I found, found that really fascinating. Thank you, Victor, because uh, as well as, it's being honest, isn't it? That, that's the key part. Being honest at the starting point and then consistent with your message um, seems, seems key. So thank you so much. I found it incredibly fascinating. And before, before I let you go, we, we always have a bit of a quick round, uh, quick fire questions around leadership. So um, I, I'll get, I'll start it off with what has been your most 
valuable leadership lesson you've been le- that you've learned? There's loads of things that I've come to realize. <laughs> um, only focus on what you can influence and control is a, a really good one. Drop everything else. Yeah. That's that's stuffy. Um, remember that when you're a leader, you set the tone. And if you come in and are miserable every day, don't be surprised that if everyone else is miserable. In a sense, being a leader is always being able to be uh, positive and uh, focused on and, and being optimistic. You know, it, it's people take a lot of temperature uh, from the people they see as leaders. So trying to be consistent and consistently uh, positive is really important. Otherwise, you create an air which is less than, you know, productive. Um, and I guess the last one I'd say to you is it's okay to be uh, you. It's all right to be you. And even the broken bits of you, all right because we're all slightly broken as humans. It's just about accepting what you're really good at and what things you're not so good at. And I can assure you, everyone's good at things and not so good at other things. And I've just come to realize that actually part of what I rely on is a great team that do things much better than me. Um, but I did some stuff that is okay too. And, and we all complement each other. But none of us are perfect. And I think sometimes I think we expect one of the biggest things I get when I talk to colleagues, particularly when I'm doing coaching, is that people don't, don't they've got this this thing around the chimp paradox. You know, they're not good enough. Um, and actually, everyone's got a degree of, of this, this in, in them. They, everyone doubts themselves. It's just the scale of how much doubt you might have from time to time. So it's perfectly reasonable and perfectly rational to to just always wonder could I have done that better but it's the point that's beating yourself up because it's all right to be you really interesting and what advice would you give to an aspiring leader starting out on their journey you will have a lot of failure but that's cool that's some of my best moments of failure I learned loads um, from doing stuff wrong and actually being told I'm wrong. You know, um, no one ever just goes for a, a big job and gets the first one. Uh, so just, you know, accept that moments come, you will almost certainly fail more times you succeed, but it's those failures that make you successful in the end. You know, if you think about a basic recruitment process, you know, there's never a recruitment unless it's staged. That's one person, one job, right? There's always more applicants than the job. So that means statistically, you know, this is a failure system. You know, recruitment is a failure system. So if you go into it going, I'd love that job. But if I don't get it, the worst that can happen is I learn loads. I understand a bit more about myself and what I could do better next time. That's a great thing. But equally except that's probably the situation in most judgments you'll make too. Most judgments you make, you might make a great judgment, but you might also make not a great judgment. And experience, only experience will help you shape your, your judgments so they, they make more good judgments than not so good ones. So I, I think I'd say to any aspiring leader, don't be put off with failure. Embrace it, recognise it, but most importantly, don't repeat it and learn from it. Um, and it goes back to the point earlier on, which is 
everyone is work in progress. Everyone. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Rick. And what do you believe to be the key leadership qualities required in, in today's world? I think more and more people want people they can trust. I think more and more people want people that give them the sense of space and to get on and do things and not be over their shoulder. I think back in the old days, you know, the command and control style was sort of what you were expected to sort of accept. I don't think people want that, never really have. But I think modern day leaders have come to realize that actually what they're there for is about coaching, support, guidance, not about telling. It's about setting a direction of travel and then supporting someone for achieving that. Some people need close and tight supervision and other people just need to be you know, given permission. And being able to be able to manage individuals as individuals, not as a job homogenous group is really important. What do you need, Tom? I, I need this. Okay, well, let's talk about this. Someone else might need something completely different. And as leaders, we need to be able to flex our leadership style, but still be always consistent. We need to be always consistent, but be remembering that the way that we lead and guide and support individuals is about them and what they need from you, not about what you need. And it isn't about your ego. Leadership shouldn't be about what you can show you've done. Leadership should be about what you demonstrate other people have created in the business. Incredibly interesting. Thank you. And final question. Um, one book recommendation. <laughs> and I know we've discussed this before, so no pressure. Yeah, no, I, listen, I, I don't know how people manage. And I, I'm in a learning set. And I, I, I just... I, I don't know how people do it, have a, a life. And then in between meetings, I've read another two or three business books. I just don't know how people do it. My book reading is entirely selfish, fictional John Grisham's by the beach. <laughs> and I'm not, going to, I, I'm not going to somehow squeezing more business books in between. So you're not going to get anything other than absolute rubbish thrillers and <laughs> from but, but, a great, but a great way to turn off. <laughs> it well. is exactly what it is. I, you know, I think that it's an indulgence for me. Um, so I will, I will, I will, whenever I pick a book up, it's because I want to indulge myself. Look like it's like a, I don't have coffee, but it's my equivalent. Sorry, I do have coffee, I don't have chocolate. It's like my, my idea of chocolate, which is like you're chilled out, you're by the sea. And you're reading that's that's proper being chilled out um but it's remarkable some people have got this insatiable appetite to do all their work finish at eight and then read a business book by the time you met in the following week it's like i can't do that so you're not going to get that from me on from no no problem <laughs> no, I, I've, I've genuinely thoroughly enjoyed this session uh Victor, so thank you so much and i i genuinely can't thank you enough my absolute pleasure Thank you for listening to Emerge Leadership Lessons from Berry Partners. If you enjoy listening to this episode, please like, rate and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening.